0: Hey, we're live, I think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. So we are back with episode two of Cryptid History, Uncrypted. For those of you who watched last week, welcome back. Uh, we did a little bit of an intro to let you know why we're doing this. We're So we're starting with a dive into the origins of social science, psychology, psychiatry, and uh, we have we found some really interesting things to share with you for this week. Uh, <laughs> Rachel gave me a little bit of a sneak peek at some of her theories, which I think are spot on, and uh, we're gonna dive into that. I found a book which corroborates a lot of her theories. Super, super fascinating and dark and horrifying, uh, <laughs> simultaneously. That's kind of the usual yeah. around
1: here for us.
0: <laughs> yeah, fascinating and also kind of horrifying. Yes, seems to be the themes. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm really new to all of this live stream stuff, uh, and Rachel is really being very uh, patient and gracious in guiding me and helping me. So well, I'm trying to move to it, too. My
1: husband's the, the live stream ninja, so he's kind of helping me. And yeah, so we're figuring
0: it out together. <laughs> awesome. Well, she introduced me to DonoChat Chat. And so we have that linked here. I think we both have one. So yep. we will read those at the end because I am visually impaired and I'm also not capable of multitasking. So, <laughs> so.
1: well, it'll be good too, because that way um, people get a chance to hear all the information and then be thinking of their questions they have or maybe comments they want to make. Cause we have some pretty based viewership that sometimes you guys know things that we didn't know. And you can be like, Hey, did you know about this? Or you guys should look into that. That happens a lot for us. So At the end, we're going to be taking questions, comments. If you guys want to support the show, our brand new little project here. Um, Mine's pinned to the top of my link. Courtney also has hers pinned everywhere that she is. She's on Rockfin, Rumble, and then here on YouTube. And I'm just here on YouTube for now. So, yeah. Definitely feel free to support or ask questions because that makes it more fun. When we can
0: interact with you guys. So, Absolutely. Yeah, so... I don't know where you want to start. <laughs> well,
1: I think- okay. I think I've got a, a spot to start. So okay. when I was, we've been doing a ton of research on this kind of stuff for a while, which is why we decided to do the series because there's just so much. Um, and I was kind of looking back over all my notes today and kind of thinking about it. And I was thinking about how there's this myth of scientific neutrality Mm-hmm. That in our day and age, we assume that if something is considered a science or it is performed in a clinical setting at all, if it's studied in a university, if there's people in white, white lab coats doing it, that it must be really solid. There must be evidence. It must have undergone this rigorous investigatory process. And, you know, we just assume these things and we assume that the people who are studying these things and performing the research are neutral, that they're just there performing the scientific method and trying to find things out. Well, that's never the case in I any of the sciences really, but no. especially, especially here with psychology and psychiatry and social science, it's definitely not the case. So I think that's what this is really about is us kind of exposing who the people were who created these fields and tried to make them a science Yep. Even though it's a soft science and what their belief systems were, because there are humans behind the lab coats and those humans have beliefs. Yep. They have uh, they have like their own mind and way of thinking of things that affects how they're doing their work. So that's kind of what I was thinking to start with. And then we can just start with the chronicle chronological Um
0: <laughs> stuff I have here. Awesome. Uh, I I just want to add to that. The other thing about the science is that, you know, and even in a lot of these uh, articles and books that I pulled up, they actually say scientism versus science. And one of the main things that you see here is that it's really just, you know, uh, diverting and, uh, you know, abdicating all uh, critical thinking to the quote-unquote experts and also taking things as face value. So it's, if it's science, Then whatever results they find, that they expect you not to question because it's it's science and so it's settled, which is actually very much contrary to the first rule of science: is that there's you know many questions cannot be answered, but there are no answers that cannot be questioned. That was Feynman, you know, whole principle, and that is really what science is predicated on. However, we seem to have forgotten that, and now you know both. I think as a result of laziness and conditioning. People just don't ask questions and they assume that if there's been a result and, you know, any evidence brought forth, then it's just somehow it becomes fact. So Yeah,
1: yeah, that's exactly what happens. And both you and I have done a lot of stuff on MK Ultra over the last few years. Yes. And the, these first few episodes are kind of going to kind of lay the groundwork and explain... How the hell did MKUltra come out of this? Stu- you know, How did we, how did they get there in such a short period of time? Because you're talking about the establishment of psychology as a field in the very late 1800s. And by 1953, probably earlier, they're yeah. doing MKUltra experiments on people. So it's like, whoa, how did it go from a brand new field to human experimentation on a mass scale worldwide like this? Mind control experiments. And so that's kind of what we're laying the groundwork for as well here with what we're going to talk about. So shall we get into it? Yes, let's do it. All right. So I kind of uh, started off, we we gave you guys a little bit of an intro to the ethos in our last uh, episode. I do talk about it a little bit in my book because hypnotism and somnambulance, which is what they called it before it was coined hypnotism, mm-hmm. Um These things are really, really old, like go back to ancient times. But I think we can look to post-Enlightenment, early to mid-1800s and see that's when people started to really try to turn psychology into a field of scientific study. Um, And there's a whole bunch of people that were all this is kind of how things work in history. When you study history, there's always these groups of intellectuals. That steer things. Yep. And that's that's why we're doing crypto history. Because the stuff they teach you in school never mentions all the secret societies, the secretive groups, the clusters of intellectuals who, yes, they work in the university together during the day. But then what they're doing outside the university sometimes in their little groups gets a little crazy and a little wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's definitely the case with psychology. So you had this... Middle to late 1800s group of intellectuals, mostly centered in Germany as mm-hmm. well as England. Yeah, And yes. it would have been people like Dr. Hugh Crichton Miller, who we're going to talk about some people you guys have probably never heard of. And then some really well-known people like Freud and Jung and some of those guys. Um, but this guy was interesting to me because he... In 1902, was at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and wrote his PhD thesis on hypnotism. He was probably the first modern person to do that. He was the son of a Presbyterian minister. And I found this really interesting connection that so many of the people I looked into and did biopics on had clergy for parents, ministers yeah. ministers and priests for parents. Um, yeah. So I, do, I don't fully know what that means, but I think... Ministers and pastors. Yeah. Yeah. I think the interest in the spiritual affected almost all of these people. Like I said, Mm -hmm. very few people came into this field with just a strict clinical mindset. Almost all of them had a background in religion, occult religion, Mm -hmm. Gnosticism, things like that, that ended up influencing their work. And this fellow... Um, he joined the Royal Army Medical Corps in World War One. This is going to be another super common thread through all the research. All these people serve in the war, whether it's World War One, World War II, Vietnam. War is like a theater for experimentation. You can get away with studying things during wartime that you can't really get away with any other time. Yeah. So like, we a think lot that- of them end up in World War I working for like the Royal army medical corps like the german army things like that the prussian army um and this fellow did that and he was the one who founded the charitable clinic in tavistock square that would much later become the tavistock institute which will be next week yes and there. courtney is like the she's like a professor of tavistock <laughs> studies you guys. So you're gonna love next week
0: it's, um, it's next, started me on this really like going down most of this rabbit hole because it was just this like monster shadow think tank that nobody had. I mean, I certainly had never heard of. So and I realized all the connections that it had. So that that was actually really what like kind of opened the the floodgates for me. So, yeah, for sure. And
1: so Dr. Hugh Crichton Miller was the one who opened this clinic in Tavistock Square out of concern for shell shock sufferers. Mm -hmm. Now, this is one of those things that you see all the time. That I highly question. It's this idea of, oh, it all just came out of concern for people who had shell shock in World War One, Like, maybe, but also no. Because there was things going on prior to that, right? There were things going on prior to World War One that were uh, pretty crazy. Like, this, this doctor who started Tavistock was a popular lecturer on the new psychology based on all of Jung's work. And Jung was very much into the occult. He yes. was... Very deep into that stuff, and yes, people that's don't know. So didn't arrive it.
0: yet, but there, there's a whole book on it on Jung's uh, occultic influences, and he was yes. also a mystic, and he was agent four eight eight, so he's a double agent for the OSS and the United States. So he yeah, that's a a, another
1: head. super common theme. Yes, that for whatever reason, anyone we look into often ends up being wrapped up with intelligence. It's always like this. Venn diagram of overlap between like intelligence theaters of war espionage and the occult. Yes. That you just see repeat 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 all throughout at least the last 150 years probably And then longer. they use
0: the secret societies to kind of do their bidding. That's really yes. you, And that's like a new thing that that's actually a new theory that I have because I I don't know if you saw I don't know if I have it with me. Oh, I do. Um so this is the front page of Life Magazine right now, which is a very like mainstream outlet. And they're talking about the quote unquote secret societies, which clearly are not so secret since they're on the front page of Life Magazine. But I think that they're kind of letting that cat out of the bag, so to speak, because they don't want you to pay attention to what's really happening, which is that they're kind of the conduit for all of the intelligence apparatus and the academic and think tank institutions, and they work through them, but they want you not to look that way, because that's really where all the action is taking place and how it's being executed.
1: Yes, exactly. So these people who are kind of secret power players who have steered the course of history are usually not just in one, but are oftentimes in multiple secret societies that yeah, also yeah. have overlap and the modern version of that we we still have those things for sure we still have oh, secret yeah. clubs secret societies but They've got a more official way of doing it now, which is they're on the board of something, right? right? They're on the board of a philanthropic organization. They're on the board of a nonprofit group. They're on the board of some NGO. It's kind of like the new secret society in a way, because you you look at this stuff, you look into these people, and it's like, how can you have time, possibly as a human, to be on like 12 different boards at once? Right and it's the same kind of people overlapping on all these different boards and so i think it's just like a a way to make it seem really above board and really uh like non suspicious yeah. that i'm in all of these powerful groups that tend to steer the direction of what's happening and that's what happened with psychology for sure yeah
0: and i think they use uh, so i would say the philanthropy is essentially just like a euphemism for money laundering and it, you know it's a they they've created this a uh, nice little like loophole for themselves in order to essentially money launder and embezzle. Um, but then they use philosophies to justify their behavior. Yeah. So the, the, you know, the philosophy behind philanthropy is supposedly charitable, you know, an elemocinary, which clearly it isn't. <laughs> and then, well, you know, they yeah. have other philosophies like, you know, uh, the whole philosophy behind Sam Bankman Freed, effective altruism which is essentially just a justification for the powerful elite to steal your money and then t- to tell you that they're such good people for doing so. Yes, yeah. they're just helping you. That's yes. always that's always what it is. And that's certainly the case here, as
1: I said, with uh, Dr. Hugh Crichton Miller founding this charitable clinic out of supposed concern for shell shock sufferers. And as always, you look into it and find, did they help the shell shock sufferers? Not really. Did they find any cures? Did, did those people get better? Not really, but they Mm -hmm. did get to do a lot of free experimentation on people. Right. So these were like vulnerable people, the, the mentally ill, the insane people who have suffered horrible war trauma. It's very easy to do experimentation on them under the guise of helping them because they don't even have anywhere else to go. Right. There's nothing, there's no other treatment, um, at that time. So, uh, Along with founding Tavistock Clinic, he was the first president and founder of the British Psychological Society, which is a big, influential, huge... huge. It's super influential, but small, right? Yeah, so the yeah. first few... There was only like 10 members um, yeah, yeah. because this was new. And it was founded in 1901 at the University of College London, uh, which comes up all the time in our research too. Um, and mm-hmm. I noticed some threads throughout these people. They're mostly names that you wouldn't probably know but a lot of people who were knighted by the queen. Everybody yeah. is a member of the royal society. Uh, m- many of them served in the royal army during World War I. Um, and there were a couple of Freemasons. And uh, yeah, they were generally... Oh, one of them, Alexander Faulkner Shand, is the great-grandfather of Queen Consort Camilla Parker yeah. bulls uh, so I thought that was interesting. Amelia
0: Parker Bowles, right? Yeah. Or the goals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was also started by um, Dr. Ernest Jones, who was like known as like the way uh, Thomas Henry Huxley was known as uh, Darwin's bulldog. That's kind of what he was known to Freud.
1: Yeah, exactly. And. I didn't know prior to doing this project, how much Darwinism affected this field. It
0: was
1: was so crazy. It was like when Darwin came up with his thesis on the, you know, uh, origin of species and evolution, Mm -hmm. this is really what kicked this off. This is really what got psychology going because there was this underlying assumption, which has now been debunked publicly, but I feel like the elites still follow this, this line of thinking. That we were once great. That human beings in pre-ancient history uh, were once these great, like uh, it's almost like a Gnostic Garden of Eden. There's a lot of Gnosticism in this. Yeah, this yeah. Gnostic Garden of Eden idea that we were once so knowledgeable, we were like a super race, and that we are actually in the process of devolving. Yeah. Rather, yeah. and that it's incumbent upon us then to take control of nature, steer evolution. Mm -hmm. and point it toward transhumanism, where we can escape this earthly, Gnostic, fleshy prison that we're all in, where we have to get sick and die and have mental illness. So it was like this idea. um, And this is what ties into my super bizarre theory.
0: Uh, So the positive eugenics versus the negative eugenics, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And of course, you and I would never agree with them on what they consider to be positive eugenics. You know. <laughs> their form of positive eugenics is just get rid of everyone who's not us.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, what's really interesting that just it speaks to the founding of the, the field of psychology. Again, this notion of like justifying their, you know, basically their theses and their, uh, worldview and, of course, the the advancement and the, the, the pow- empowerment of them, you know, as a, yes. an elite group. But one of the things that they were doing was uh, trying to weed out uh, the, you know, of course, the mentally uh, lesser than. And mm-hmm. this is where they came up. This is why the psychologists came up with the IQ testing and they were obsessed with the IQ testing. And yes. interestingly enough, Mensa actually has a eugenics division. Like they're a division that's like specifically devoted to eugenics. They've since taken it off their website, but I guess it wasn't all that popular. But yeah,
1: You you guys, eugenics never went away. No, it never went away. It was just renamed like the the Galton Society has renamed itself like five times to try to make it sound better. And it's still doing the same thing it did when it was just straight up eugenics. It's just that they they just rebrand. Right. Just like how. Um, abrasion is healthcare now. Um, they just take things and they reframe it and they try to make it sound really altruistic. We're just here to help, we're just helping. Mm. Uh, so like I found something super interesting. There was um a psychologist and doctor named Ernst Haeckel who came up with this early theory of recapitulation, which is it's strange for me being orthodox and having the recapitulation theory of atonement and then them having like basically their own evolution version of the recapitulation theory, which was like, he said you could look at the development cycle of an embryo or you could look at what they thought at the time was like the evolution of a bird where it used to have a thicker beak and then over time it adapts to have like maybe a smaller pointier beak, something like that. He would say you could look at this this evolution of like an embryo and you could see it repeat on a macro scale throughout nature. And then also in the adult life cycle of people. And this is part of what got Freud thinking that everything went back to, uh, your, your sexuality as an infant and your secret desires for your mom and the other kind of weird, bizarre theories he came up with was because they thought everything was like from infancy and it was just repeating throughout your life. Um, But this gave him a very interesting theory. So he did believe in the inheritability of behavior and and Mm -hmm. mental health. A lot of them did. They almost all did. Almost all of them were very into eugenics and evolution steering and speeding. So this is something that's happening right now with like Elon Musk, Neuralink, all of the Mm -hmm. transhumanists that we're dealing with now where they not only do they want to steer evolution, the evolution of the human species, but they want to speed it up. Right. Um, And this fellow, Ernst Haeckel, he was a monist, like he had a very interesting, very progressive type of religious view. And this was another thing I found is like people would say they were Christian, but they really weren't. So like Unitarian back then was a code word for occultist who kind of likes Jesus. Like Jesus is cool and I'm into the occult um, was kind of their thing. And as a monist, this dr haeckel thought that we were all going to become transhuman return to the one become the big blob of like oneness you know that everybody feels we're going to be when they've done too many psychedelics and he believed in a theory that had been put forth by helena blavatsky and others at the time about a lost a lost civilization and this comes up a lot so that here's my weird theory, you guys I'm gonna get it's gonna get weird now, okay So he believed because you guys remember the missing link that's never been found and now they have wiggled their way out of why they can't find a missing link and why they're all hoaxes because they've changed the theory. but we're talking about a hundred years ago when they still believed that they would find this missing link in the fossil record and they didn't know why they hadn't found it anywhere yet and his theory was that there was an ancient lost a kingdom called Lemuria. It came, the the name came from this idea that they didn't understand how they could find lemurs in like India and then find the same species of lemurs on islands in the ocean. Um, And so they thought there must've been a land bridge, right? That had sunk into the ocean and with it sank this missing link race of proto-humans. And that if they could find this, it would hold the key to steering evolution. It would hold the key to uh, doing eugenics in a proper way so that we could make everybody superhuman and we could transcend humanity and death and disease. Very weird. And so what else was going on around the same time? We're talking about turn of the century here. The Bolsheviks had uh, Nicholas Roerich and others who believed in the kingdom of Shambhala, which is very similar to Lemuria. It's supposed to be in Tibet somewhere, they they thought. Um, this is why you see a lot of theosophists and intelligence people trying to go to Tibet around the time that the Bolsheviks took power because they thought there was some kind of holy grail, mystical thing, artifact, people, something they would find there that would give them the key to becoming a super race. The Nazis thought the same thing. So the, what what should we call them? the mustache, the mean Mr. Mustache clan thought that they would find Hyperborea and that it would have the same thing, this idea of an ancient lost race that would hold the key to, instead of devolving as a species, evolving into superhumans. So really, I think World War I and World War II, to a large degree, under the surface, were about these elites in different kingdoms, different nations, looking for... A missing link from a lost civilization that was going to make them superhumans and give them power over the rest of the world. I know it sounds nutty, but how else do you explain well, all these? And there's more of them. And, like, and
0: I, just to, I mean, demystify it a little bit. A lot yeah. of the the Nazis did say that they wanted to summon up uh, dark spirits because that would give them the esoteric knowledge and technology. Uh, to be able to execute their plans. Yes. So, yes. I That's mean, what they kind of they, said it. <laughs> yeah, they did
1: say it, but it's the reason it sounds so wacky is because uh, mainline historians have just dismissed all of that. Yeah. They don't want to talk about that. It's too weird. It's too bizarre. They just say, oh, they were racist. They were just racist and thought white people were the best. But I, you, you had Rudolf Steiner at the same time looking for the lost kingdom of Agartha, which was supposed to be also around this same area. Yeah. And, and Atlantis, uh, it's all kind of the same type of a myth where they believed that in ancient times, these people were superior. They had crazy technology. They were a race of superhumans and that we've been devolving ever since then. And that in order to, Go back to that. You've got to find this lost kingdom.
0: Right. And all
1: of these psychologists were talking about who were in the British psychology society in Freud Wednesday club. A lot of them believed in this.
0: And they were all doing all of these like very ancient type of mystical black magic practices. That's what most of what, you know, became psychoanalysis stems yes. from. It was like, you had mentioned the hypnotism. There was magnetism. They were actively seeking telepathy. Freud and Jung were going back and forth, and this was actually where Ernest Jones was super jealous because he couldn't understand it, but he very much, like, wanted to, and he wanted to have these powers. Um, They talked about hauntings and hallucinations and being able to utilize those, and then, of course, drugs, right? Like, uh, (laughs) you know, that that was uh, one of, from Really early on, Freud talks about like uh, the discovery of cocaine and how it was the he was gonna pop he really out.
1: liked cocaine, he really <laughs>
0: liked cocaine and he it's wanted all the cocaine was a super drug there. and it was awesome. Yeah, well,
1: it, I mean, it was, and then cocaine, about modern
0: psych- yeah, we wanted a really modern psychiatrist prescribing Adderall and Rit- Ritalin to everyone. This is not new, no, <laughs> like, it's not exactly new at all. Freud did. Yeah. Yeah, um, Um, I just wanted to read this because this is just it goes all the way back to Nietzsche. And this is exactly what you're saying. It doesn't talk about the missing link, but this is so he says, do you believe that the sciences would have arisen and grown up if the sorcerers, alchemists, astrologers and witches who had not been their forerunners, those who with their promising and foreshadowing had first to create a thirst, a hunger and a taste for hidden and forbidden powers in 1882. Yeah, that's Nietzsche. Yeah.
1: so And he's right because, like we were saying, when you go back and read the writings of these people who were the pioneers of psychology and psychiatry, they were looking for the Philosopher's Stone. They were looking for ancient lost civilizations. They were looking for keys to power. They were looking for how do we control the human mind, the most powerful force on Earth? How do we grab the reins of this? And so, yes, they had... um, I mean, going back to ancient times, but they, there was a renewed interest in the 17 and 1800s around hypnotism, magnetism. Um, there was a very obscure Portuguese. Uh, he said he was a priest. I think he was maybe a Jesuit. It doesn't really say. There's not much known about his life, but he was accused of the church. By the church of being an occultist because he would do magnetic seances. Yeah. Now I looked and looked and looked and couldn't find much about exactly what that would have entailed. And it's probably because we don't know much about this guy, but he, he did write a book that was popular at the time and he well, was doing something called magnetic seances. Yeah. Well, name.
0: it actually, it stemmed from uh, uh, Franz a Franz Mem- Mesmer. Yeah. Is Franz Mesmer. Mm-hmm. Yes. This guy was a
1: contemporary of Mesmer, but he disagreed with him about, like, he kind of thought Mesmer was a hack who was being too suggestive with people. And his, his, uh, theory was more, um, kind of what gave them this idea of the subconscious mind of, uh, I'm not going to suggest much to you. I'm just going to open you up and see what comes out, which this is another thing. It's like,
0: what happens when we open up parts of the mind that we don't know about? With the push for, you know, all the psychedelics again, but now we're going to use it as a, a therapeutic uh, adjunct and guide. And it's because we can, we can just dissolve all these boundaries and now we Mm -hmm. can. uh, Yeah. So I think it's the same thing, but
1: yeah. So they were kind of just doing black magic, but telling everyone it was science (laughs) It's really how you can kind of think of it is like they were, you know, they're trying to find the power of the subconscious. They're trying to interpret dreams. They're trying to manifest things right in. Mm -hmm. We're going to take whatever's in your subconscious and see if we can manifest it. We're going to, um, you know, see if we can harness whatever power we think it is within people. So like Mesmer thought there was magnetism in the blood. He thought it, it mm-hmm. was in the blood. Others thought it was in the brain. Others thought it was, you know. In, he did think or, it was the sixth sense though.
0: Yeah. Uh, Mesmer. Yeah. Yeah. He had the sixth sensibility which would enable the perception of distant events, clairvoyance, and the knowledge of other languages.
1: Yeah. So early psychology, it hasn't really changed, but especially in, when you read what these people were writing – It's like they knew there was a spiritual occult aspect to things. And that's why they came up with the name psychology means study of the soul. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they knew there was a medical component. And this component was inspired by early Darwinism by Charles Darwin, by Darwin's circles, by the early theory of evolution. And so they were trying to figure out how do we scientifically merge these things, which is why you find so much overlap with theosophy or anthroposophy, which was Rudolf Steiner's Mm -hmm. occult religion, because those two things were supposed to be a modern blending of ancient Eastern occult religion and modern Western science, right? Right. So really, that's what psychology is. Psychology is just like, okay, we're going to we're going to study a cult religion and ev- like medical biological evolution. And we're going to do it in a university in a clinical setting. That's they what they were doing.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think also to legitimize it so that people followed it um, and to pull people away from more traditional, uh, you know, like religious and community yeah. community and familial type of uh therapeutic kind of treatments or just, you know, well-being essentially, but yeah. it was to pull people away from that into a more, uh, you know, systematized path that they could claim was legitimate because it was systematized. And and then they could also create a whole field of uh, study and schooling and degrees around it, which would be a vehicle for them to indoctrinate and to control, yes. and also to create these little boards and uh, you know clubs and uh, secret organizations in which they could uh, you know seize power and control over others.
1: Yes. So you immediately find them very high up in all the institutions, mm-hmm. almost immediately, immediately, because the people who created the field were already generally in the institutions so you'll find them in like the most influential universities of the time the royal society many freemasons people yes. i didn't even know were freemasons i didn't know that freud was a member of the
0: um benai in vienna yes. which uh, the according to the executive intelligence report says that that was actually an offshoot of uh the mi5 british intelligence so
1: makes sense Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Um, But that's that's what was in that. We think a lot of theosophy was also British intelligence. Um, Probably. And this is why you saw so many of these people like uh, Blavatsky and then a little bit later, um, Annie Besant and uh, Ledbetter going to India, going to Tibet to set up, you know, temples, churches, uh, orphanages things like this, it was kind of a way to get into Tibet, which was pretty walled off and cut off from the West. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you could kind of only get in there if you pretended you were into Buddhism, really, um, and things of that nature. And I think that they were gathering intelligence there as well. Um, Who else do I have here? Oh, yes. So there's an interesting connection with the families of Darwin and Galton. They go back a few hundred years as pals they were a very influential family that kind of had lots of fingers and lots of pies a, a lot of Freemasons Erasmus Darwin was a Freemason two of his sons and likely Charles Darwin I don't think they've ever been able to find him on an actual membership role right but, but they're pretty sure he was and they had a something called the Lunar Society which immediately I mean to call it the lunar society is like already occultic but it lasted from 1765 to 1813. And it was very influential Englishmen who were into the occult and um, like the very early psychology hypnotism, trying to figure out how to harness the human mind and the intellect and trying to figure out how to be influential and disseminate whatever it was they wanted out into the public and into the institutions of the time. So Sir Francis Galton, famous eugenicist, Mm-hmm. Um, was into he psychology. He
0: started society. Yeah. Yes. And
1: mm-hmm. he founded psychometrics and differential psychology, which was studying the differences in individual behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, he thought that civilization diminished natural selection, right? So they're all working off of this early Darwinian model, um, thinking that we are gradually
0: deteriorating. Maybe. And that they were like a <laughs> feedback loop, so they were actually related. They were cousins, and they very yeah. much influenced each other. There's lots of letters and correspondence between Darwin and uh, mm-hmm. Galton, and yeah, they you were could see the you know intellectual influence back and forth.
1: Yeah, Erasmus Darwin was their obvious. mutual um, grandparent, um, and he was a uh, member of a Scottish free right Scottish right Freemason mm-hmm. lodge. His sons were. Um, yeah, the Darwin Wedgwood families, who they are. And um it was very interesting because, like I said, i I' never thought about the fact that these people were under the impression that humanity was not evolving to improve. And this is so counter counter to what I was taught in like high school biology, that natural selection improves species, right. It helps them adapt and it makes them better. That was not the original theory. They thought that civilization had ruined natural selection. And mm-hmm. then we had to, so this is a lot of the reasoning behind why they want to get rid of so many people and can be so controlling and, and harness nature and try to take back natural selection because they thought the species was devolving. And they also thought this was a big uh, thing in the early study of psychology was that mental illness was heritable and that with each generation that you had a disability,
0: a mental illness, a mental disability. Well, they actually created the term. So a lot of it wasn't even a discovery as much as they were, it was, you know, really like confirmation bias. They basically created these labels in order to then, you know, be able to execute their uh, quote unquote treatments and so that they could advance this, you know, because they felt that, you know, the natural selection, as you're saying, wouldn't just naturally happen. It was incumbent on them, upon them. And of course, they know better than everybody else because yes. they're the elite. And but. so they need to steer uh, the natural selection process, which doesn't sound very natural, does it? I mean,
1: it doesn't. <laughs> but that's the thing is that they they had this belief that unless they did something, it's very similar to the climate cults of today, where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, everything's going to turn out terrible unless we control nature and fix everything, right? So that's what they thought. And they thought that with each successive generation, whatever mental illness, disability, whatever was quote-unquote wrong with you would only get worse. Yeah. Now, that was that was disproved really quickly. I mean, right. it was like a decade or two and they went, oh, wait, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't fit. Uh, I mean... We see this all the time. Like I have a a severely mentally ill parent and I'm really mentally stable. I know it might (laughs) not seem like it sometimes, but I've never had any issue with like real mental illness or anything like that. It's something they disproved really quickly, but for whatever reason, I think because of their underlying spiritual and occultic beliefs, they really held on to this idea that no, 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 we have to be the ones who choose who goes into the future. And they still talk about
0: this today, right? Yeah, it it really ignores epigenetics. Mm -hmm. I mean, right, like, so it completely favors genetics, which we, we now know that they know so little about actual genetics. We also know that so much of the uh, fundraising and these studies around genetics were actually kind of a sham. It was done so they could manipulate or they try to, I don't think they've actually been all that successful. I think that they, they want us to believe they've been a lot more successful than they have because they want to scare us. But yeah. for instance, you know, they like us to believe that they can actually do genetic manipulation and that they can edit gene. What they can do is gene deletion. So they can take right. out something, but they can't actually move, put things in or rearrange things. Uh, so that's just one example there's so little that they understand and they just want you to believe that they have this power that they don't actually have. And it's partly because they, they are sorcerers and wizards and they think that if they cast the spell, right, just by telling you, then you'll believe it and it'll be so. Um, I just wanted to add uh, something else just to corroborate yes, what you're saying. Yes, please do. Because uh, there's actually the American Eugenic Society re- reveals that 31 presidents of the APA, which is the American Psychological Association, um. Have, have been uh, between 19, 1892, which was when Stanley G. Hall, we'll get to him because he has yes. a ties to, you know, Skull and Bones and the Illuminati, um, and to Wilhelm Wundt, who was known as the father of psychology. Uh, so between him and then in 1947, which is when Carl Rogers was the president, they were publicly li- listed as leaders of the various eugenic or- organizations. There's a huge number. In that's a, a short span of time. So that shows you these people really were eugenicists. That is like the driving philosophy yes. behind these people. So,
1: Yes, absolutely. I think that, uh, yeah, it's like, it's really nutty that psychology is really just eugenicists who are into the occult, basically. Like if you just yeah. wanted to be like really basic and boil it down, that's kind of what it is. Yeah, it so. is. There's
0: a... They had uh, titles like The Field of Eugenic Reform. Um, There was the, what was the other one? Uh, A few of the APA presidents not only published positive reviews of eugenic books, but also produced studies on supposed differences in national character, showing striking national difference, uh, you know, found between the different, uh, like, different races and their their. uh, capacity for empathy or lack thereof, which is really interesting also because um, we now know that you can actually create a psychopath, which is one of the core components of a psychopath is that they're devoid of empathy, which it's actually much more nuanced than that. People think they just don't have empathy, but really what they have is a very keen sense of what empathy is. They may not necessarily be affected by it, but they know they can just... they can determine it in others and they know how to manipulate yep. it to serve their own, advance their own goals and agendas. So, yeah. So anyway.
1: the British psychological society, yes, this first body founded in 1901, I'll just do a quick rundown of the founding members and some key mm-hmm. facts about them. So Robert Armstrong Jones, he was a Royal army medical Corps uh, officer during world war one member of the Royal college of physicians, royal college of surgeons uh he ran an asylum and was knighted by the queen and was a fellow of the royal society Mm -hmm. sophie bryant who was a feminist activist
0: of course uh the only woman armstrong was also a member of the eugenic society yes Yes. oh my goodness like i think every single one of these
1: people was yeah um this lady was a member of the London Ethical Society. She was a humanist atheist, also into eugenics, and was childhood friends with George Bernard Shaw, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, W.R. Boyce Gibson, son of a Methodist minister, um, he references... Stop was a
0: baby and socialist.
1: So, yeah. Yep. References G. Stanley Hall in his work, God With Us. Um, in the preface, uh, Rudolph Yukin gives thanks to the Hibbert Trust for funding... His work, the Hibbert trust is interesting because it was designed to develop unorthodox Christianity under a monist, uh, Unitarian ethos. um, And it wanted to protect progressive liberal religion. In fact, I would say one of the the key words when we're talking about this is progressive because all of Mm -hmm. these people thought they were ushering in a new age of Mm -hmm. progress. So scientifically, they wanted progress. Um, spiritually and religiously they were all what we would now look back and consider new age. So like theosophy, um, the Baha'i faith, uh, there's surprisingly a lot of Baha'i faith people involved in this, which is like the ultimate ecumenist universal religion that was proto new age, uh, which had a lot of overlap with theosophy. Um, So That was him, and that Hibbert Trust is still around today, and it still it supports Black Lives Matter and all kinds of really ultra progressive left wing stuff in the UK. Um, Frank Noel Hales, he was invited to join members of the Rothschild family on a tour of Europe and tutored one of their sons. Uh, Other than that, he wasn't like he didn't seem to do a lot of work. He retired from psychology and moved to Canada, but he was close really close with the Rothschild family uh William McDougall uh somebody who's a little more well known University College London Oxford Harvard all these people are in the big um influential universities right yep. he established parapsychology as a field and mm-hmm. opened the first lab at Duke University here and um the he is a Royal Society fellow a member of the eugenics society um. He was a friend of Galton. He was very into scientific racism. That Mm -hmm. was like one of his big things. So parapsychology and scientific racism was this guy's jam, which seems weird. He was into like animism and panpsychism. So he thought there was like some substance that gave things consciousness. Uh, And he was very his studies were mostly on like telepathy. He wanted to scientifically prove telepathy. So again, another person trying to basically, this was a bunch of nerds. You guys all trying to like mind battle each other back, uh, you know, 120, 30 years ago. It's nuts. They
0: they were. And they were really trying to read minds. What's interesting when you read a a lot of Freud's confessions and he talks about, and Jung too, especially in their letters back and forth to each other, uh, they talk about like trying to read their patients' minds. And Mm -hmm. this is one of the biggest problems that I I actually have with the field in general is because psychoanalysis in particular endows the, therapist with so much power and what often happens is that instead of actually reading their minds contrary to what they might want you to believe because they want you to believe they have these magical powers what they actually end up doing is projecting onto the patient and this is where real damage can be done this is where it can actually be really really harmful to that individual because now you're taking a set of circumstances a personality motives and Just literally thoughts that may not be from them at all and projecting them onto them, which is one, confusing, disorienting, and two, can actually create trauma that wasn't there. So that's one of my... Some of
1: them really wanted to do that. It was very much like, let's see see what happens when we totally screw with the human psyche. Let's see what happens when we introduce things or take things away. They were programming. So from the earliest days of psychoanalysis, there's going to be some level of programming. That's why I started by talking about this myth of neutrality because you're not trying to dig into someone's subconscious or their psyche and see what you can do in there unless you have some level of intent, right? I mean, you can't be just neutral. I'm just curious. I just want to see what's deep in the recesses of your
0: mind. This is like when I talk about, you know, uh, (laughs) Like one of the things I I, I talk about all the time because I'm so concerned about the CBDCs, you know, and how Mm -hmm. uh, Biden issued that executive order 14067 on March 9th, and then it went into effect on December 13th of 2022. And the the pushback I get all the time is, Kearney, don't worry about that. That's just research. I'm like, right, because they just spend an an inordinate amount of time, resources, and money on research that... For no reason. I mean, the yeah. research, you know, it's just fun. We're just, of- yeah. Yeah. We're just curious, yeah. Curious. I just want to see what'll
1: happen. Uh, so I just have three more quick people from yes. the British Psychological Society. Sir Frederick Walker Mott, of course, yes. knighted by the Queen, Royal Society fellow. He lectured at the Eugenics Education Society. William Halsey Rivers uh, went to work with Emil Craplin who I will talk a little bit about later uh, his work was the basis of much of the Nazi eugenics programs um, and then Alexander Faulkner Shand who was the great grandfather of Camilla Parker Bowles who is now the Queen Consort so these weren't uh, people you may have heard their name but they were tied in with the most powerful people of their day yeah. and they were all super into eugenics and they
0: were going to fix humanity what could go wrong right <laughs> <laughs> yeah what could go wrong and they they believe there are too many of us and that we should be uh naturally quote unquote selected out but don't worry nothing will That'll be wrong. fine it's fine. It'll be fine yeah
1: do you want to talk about G Stanley Hall now should we go to him yeah let's go do to you him have something before him that you want to do
0: um well i guess say. Uh, We could do him first and then go into Wilhelm Wundt because I just think Wilhelm Wundt is kind of relevant. And he's like a little bit of a linchpin to a lot of this. But I don't know which one you want to start with.
1: Well, maybe we'll start with Wundt because Hall went to study with him.
0: Yes, he did. He was one of the few Americans who studied with him and got his Ph.D. under him. I think it was, what, 147 Ph.D. students under Wundt? Yeah. Something like that. Uh, That's a lot for someone who personally had no degrees at all. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, Bundt's, like, philosophical worldview was very much aligned with the New World Order that we would call today. Uh, Mm -hmm. He believed he saw history as going through a series of stages from primitive tribes to an age of heroes and then to formation of nation states culminating in a world state based on the concept of humanity as the whole. So this is the same kind of thing you're talking about with the new age and with the monads, you know, this idea that we are all one and we're returning to the one. Um, And uh, he was very much a proponent of that. He was very influenced. One of his, primary influences, philosophically speaking, was Hegel. And Hegel uh, was also, he was an alchemist, and he very much believed in, uh, you know, we often hear the thesis, uh, uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, that was actually really Kant who said that. Hegel actually said, uh, you know, it was the uh, concrete, negation, and abstract. And the abstract was actually kind of the opposite of what you would think it would be, because it is—it is kind of a synthesis. It was this notion of all these different parts and how they integrate. Uh, but the really important part of uh, Hegel's concept of the Hegelian dialectic was the negation, because it is through this negation that you know you, when you hear. Uh, Certainly the Illuminati th- phrase was uh, order through chaos. And negation is how we get that chaos because that's yeah. where we get Haven to culture is through that negation. And negation, uh, Haven culture is an interesting term just because it's a, an oxymoron in itself because it's this notion of keeping, uh, keeping up, maintaining while tearing down. And this is why you have the shell of things. This is why they rebrand and they rename things because the name may be there. Uh, but then they've, of course, destroyed what it means. And so it has no meaning and it's confusing and creates chaos. So that's those were his influences. Um, and uh, who else was there? Yeah, he believed that the. A uh, purpose was to develop personal character and social morality. The most important task of an educator was to analyze activities and the duties of men within society because the state was the God. So Essentially, yes. it was all about creating uh, a, you know, the, the ultimate state. And, you know, that becomes the one. And man is just continuously discarded throughout history uh, to serve the state. Mm-hmm. So. So these are the the world views of Vunt, who created the fields of psychology. He wasn't yes. really somebody who was uh who believed in the individual. He wasn't somebody who uh, came from a uh, certainly not a uh, traditional kind of a uh, spiritual view. It was spiritual in a sense of uh, more of a Gnostic type or a Hermetic kind of worldview, yes. where they believed that they were gods, and of course that the state was god. Um, And they would create the the perfect state, which would ultimately lead to this, uh, you know, universal one world governance. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
1: yeah. That that was the goal of a lot of these people. Again, Mm -hmm. when you read them, it's like uh, obedience to the state, creation Mm -hmm. of. And this was a lot of the justification for eugenics, too, was like it's the welfare of the state. It's the collective. It's the greater good. We have to improve humanity and um like g stanley hall was definitely on on this too and it's probably because he studied with him and this was it was really the same kind of spirit we have now where it's like oh all of that god stuff is like outdated we are scientists we know things we're we have gnosis so we can fix all the things that are wrong with creation you know, no zero humility, you know, like the cornerstones of Christianity are humility and repentance. Mm -hmm. And they hated those things. Yeah. They wanted to have the control themselves. We can figure it out with our own brain. Uh, you know, like uh, the power of the human mind and we're special and we're elite and through our little secret clubs that we have, um, we're going to fix everything.
0: And that was the, the goal of the, uh, the, the Illuminati, you know, Adam Weishaupt formulated officially formulated in 1776. I think it was May 5th of uh, 1776, and uh, the, their goal, of course, was world domination. But they believed they would achieve that through uh, destroying, overthrowing all governments and all religions. And yeah. they, but they talked about how they had to create society, the state, submissiveness as a false religion. They knew that it was through re- creating a religious type of fervor that they yeah. would then create uh, the movement. And they could also infiltrate. You know, so that's when they infiltrated through the Masonic lodges and uh, yes. through a lot of religious institutions as well.
1: So, yep, they, they created religious in- institutions and new types of schools. So yes. one thing we had going on in Russia with Maxim Gorky and Anatola Anatoly Lunacharsky, they yeah. had this idea called God building which means, uh, like, Lenin wanted to get rid of religion, get rid of God, make everyone atheist, and these two understood that you can't really do that. Spirituality right, right. is a part of humanity. So mm-hmm. they said, we can build a new God, which will be the state. And these were international communists. So they they thought, we'll build up Russia, and then Russia will become, like, the world state, the world government. It, like, they all wanted globalism, but they all wanted to be in charge of it, kind of, you know. Yeah. I,
0: well, I always well, talk like, about this with like, like Lenin and Stalin. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh, sorry, Lenin, uh, uh, Stalin, and Hitler. When people are like, you know, Hitler was a fascist and Stalin was a communist, and I'm like, uh, no, it was like a battle of men, not a battle of uh, ideology. Really, no, these like really, when it comes down to it, the ideology was very
1: like secondary to really their spiritual beliefs and their worldviews about what they thought the future should be. And of course they all wanted to be in charge of it. And so did these people, this was the science of how to do that, you know? So, um, we had God building, we had the, these monist underpinnings, these occultic, Gnostic, hermetic underpinnings. Um, you had, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, the schools, the Steiner Waldorf schools, at the time. And this, these are still around and they're like, there's like 16 of them that are affiliated with UNESCO, which Mm -hmm. shouldn't shock us because we already mentioned Darwin and Huxley and that was Thomas Huxley. And then of course, Aldous Huxley and his brother Julian um,
0: Huxley. Julian Huxley
1: starts UNESCO and they implement Steiner Waldorf schools, which is going to teach the kids all of this kind of stuff, you know, they're into Anthroposophy and the Akashic records. And these are like diehard occultists. And UNESCO is like, yes, let's endorse their schools. (laughs) Right? Because because why? Because the occult is the new one world religion. It's the new world order. So these things, that's why these things are always tied together. The politics of it is just an extension. It's just one aspect. It's always really about the underlying. I think it's really spiritual. just a tool.
0: I, yeah. I actually think politics and you know, a lot of these people talk about that. I mean, the the certainly the Illuminati talks about that. The uh uh when you look at a lot of these uh uh you know, like Stanley Hall and Gilman, they all talk about like the political be- arm being just a, a tool in order to execute their their vision of what they've you know, felt was best for man. It just yeah. didn't happen to entail uh, being pro-humanity, but
1: right, yeah. Well, and, yeah, it never is. It's always, it's always Luciferian, really underneath. Yeah. But just want to remind you guys really quack, really fast, quick quack. I mixed them together. Apparently, my brain shuts off at 10 p.m. There is a dono chat link pinned to the top of all of our chats. So all of Courtney's chats and my chat. There's a dono link. If you guys want to send a donation with a question, we want to answer questions. If you have questions about this stuff, if you have comments about it or things you want to see us cover in the future, anything like that, or you just want to support our new little project show here, we would be very thankful. So please consider sending us a dono chat and we will read them at the end. So um, so do you have anything else on Wundt?
0: Yeah, I'm looking through. I'm trying to find all of the, uh, because he had a lot of connections. So I just want to make sure I get these all right. Um, You know, he was influenced by Herbert, who was an educational theorist as well as philosopher. Um, Let's just see where. And Herbert was at the University of Jena. And then later at Goeth, and he was in connection with uh, Pastelozzi, and Pastelozzi was a di- direct connection to the Illuminati. Um, he was uh, reported to be, you know, uh, okay. Let's see. He was he was known to be uh, Ebrarus in the. No, sorry, wait. That was. Fitch, who was who was de- who was connected to Herbert to Pestalozzi. Sorry, they're all these different uh, they're all like connected. Yeah, Pestalozzi was known to be Alfred in the Illuminati Code. Okay. Um, and then, all right, let's see where else were we. Um, I do have here about Wundt
1: that he was greatly influenced by the flood of writing on hypnotism and spiritualism at the time. He was. He was very into that. And he kind of defined psychology as empirical humanity science, but combined physiology, philosophy, ethics, logic, and epistemology with these like parapsychology uh, occultic type of things.
0: Yes. He called it introspection uh, psychology, but it would really be better translated as observation. And I see him kind of as a forerunner to uh, Skinner. You know, it's really, like, he uh, was the one who took it into a, like, systematic kind of biological science where we're observing the behavior and then manipulating based on the behaviors that we see. Uh, So Think of, like, the Skinner box. I think it really started with Blunt, and it was because he really wanted to be able to, he wanted it to be perceived as a hard science. and. You know, obviously we see that, you know, it's based on things like, uh, you know, hypnotism and a lot of, and parapsychology. So it's really not hard science, but that's really what he he wanted to get, garner that respect. Yes. and So, yeah. So that's where he was drawing most of that. But I do think it was the forerunner to Skinner. Um, yeah. yeah and he he it, had
1: some really influential students when he came to America, Mm -hmm. And trained people here. Uh, James McKean Cattell was the first U.S. um, psych professor. Uh, Granville Stanley Hall, who we're going to talk about. Uh, Charles Hubbard Judd, who was at the University of Chicago. And then Walter Dill Scott, who they put in Harvard. So this is something I've written about before, where Mm -hmm. the elites, the way they influence, the way they infiltrate all the institutions and get the... Uh, They corner the market on the ideology or what is taught to people is they will train their minions and then place their minions in the most influential institutions, whether it's universities, churches, government, media, marketing, all of that stuff. So this happened immediately right out of the gate. As soon as the first experimental psychology lab was formed, whoever their students were, whoever they liked, whoever was going to teach what they wanted, they put them in the most influential institutions in Europe and the united states
0: yes yeah so should we move on to hall sure yeah He's fun <laughs> yeah we talked a little
1: bit about him on the episode i did um with james klysek
0: and the founding yeah. of the educational well, system think, yeah that makes sense because i mean a lot of where i'm getting this from is actually uh anthony sutton's america's secret establishment order of skull and bones and there's a whole section on uh the order uh and education it's how the order controls education and it was a yeah so he goes through all of these connections that hall and gilman uh had and hall was obviously you know a uh He was one of the Americans to get the Ph.D. under a So, yep. Yep.
1: Yeah. And he was also the person who invited Freud to his
0: only trip to the United States at Clark Mm -hmm. University. (laughs) Um, And and Freud was busy trying to schedule some sort of other trip. And it was like a pretty mystical uh, trip. And that got derailed because he got this invitation. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, Granville Stanley Hall is the guy I was talking about who was so heavily influenced by Ernst Haeckel's recapitulation theory of evolution. Um, That really kind of steered his whole view of how these things should be done. Um, He was, you know, very much a social Darwinist, uh, Darwinian evolution, all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. So, And he was super influential on the education system. Psychology in general is extremely influential on the education system. William
0: James is known as being like the father of American psychology. And he was, of course, alongside with Dewey as one of the founders of the modern education system in America.
1: Yep. And they were both friends with G. Stanley Hall, both of them. And all of them studied under Wundt. So it all kind of comes from the same place. Mm -hmm. and Hall was one of the founding members of the American Society for Psychical Research. So he did a lot of, a lot of research on psychics. He did debunk some of them. Um yeah. And he did end up leaving that, that society because he became a skeptic of parapsychology because so many of them ended up being frauds. But he was... Super deeply into this German concept of Volk, which is where the again another theme where the individual dissolves into the transcendental collective. Mm -hmm. So this is a really important thing for us to keep hammering on because the people who are in charge of figuring out how your mind works believe that the individual needs to dissolve into the collective. He he had the same idea that the state should be God, and he was very He was very opposed to um, sympathy for the poor, the sick, or disabled.
0: Yeah, He
1: he really thought that you should have no mercy and no sympathy for them. They were just disposable. They should be gotten rid of. They were bringing down the future of humanity. Um, He believed in selective breeding and forced sterilization. Um, Yeah.
0: And I, I one the one other thing I forgot about uh, von is he uh, this was another one of his Hegelian influences. He says that they were constantly seeking synthesis to re- reconcile opposites into higher truth. Psychological synthesis was a key element. So yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean that's it's going to be central. If you're if you're one of these people, you need to know how to get everyone to go along with this stuff because mm-hmm. most people most people don't want to be
0: eliminated. And one other thing that he you don't want to be sterilized. <laughs> no, exactly. And one of his other uh, contribution was uh, structuralism, which he later abandoned because it didn't work. Uh, yeah. But structuralism is really really interesting because it's kind of the forerunner to a lot of the postmodernism. And the manipulation of linguistics and language, which is what they're always doing, uh, as we were saying before, you know, it's like kind of how they cast spells. I think that in that regard, they see themselves as, uh, you know, doing alchemy through words and through lang- language. Um yes. And he was he but he realized that he really couldn't push that. And it, it It just didn't work.
1: Yeah. Well, so remember that we just told you this guy had such a big influence on the education systems in Europe and America at the time. And his belief was that, um, well, for one thing, he did a lot of studies on only children and thought that being an only child was a disease that you, that only children were always going to turn out like really screwed up and awful.
0: Yeah.
1: He also believed that children are just savages and that it's a waste of time to reason with them. You just have to beat them until they submit. Uh, (laughs) So that might be one reason why, uh, you know, public school never really did it for me. I'm not really into the masochism thing. I don't like getting uh, punitively punished every time I don't every time I wrong think. Mm -hmm, Um, Right. So yeah, the his idea of the evolution of child development was this recapitulation theory, and he thought we shouldn't even focus on intellectual attainment. We need to just focus on love of authority, discipline, and devotion to the state. He thought that open discussion and critical thinking should not be tolerated. That sounds like my public school experience. I might be biased. I I did not have a no, that was my experience. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've talked in our previous episode about how you and I both got in trouble for going, wait a minute, isn't it this actually? And even though we were right, we got in trouble. Um, So that's, that's where this idea comes from. um, In large part is Hall. He thought that you don't, you're not in school to learn or to think you're there to learn obedience and devotion to the state. Uh, We don't want your opinions. We don't want to hear your thoughts or your questions on things. Um, and then, yeah, this idea that empathy or sympathy towards undesirables interfered with selection toward the super race. So he was yet another person who was a believer in this idea of steering human evolution toward creating a super race. It's kind of crazy that only the mean Mr. Mustache clan gets, gets hit with this rap, right? It's like so many of these people and so many eugenicists and they were, it was very popular, Darwinism made eugenics. It was like the next logical step, right? Oh, well, if we figured out evolution, I guess we better start steering it and controlling it and manipulating it to what we want and create a super race of superhumans, which then becomes
0: transhumanism. Yeah, it's essentially the Ubermensch is uh, the the transhuman, which leads to the posthuman. Yeah, he. So these are just some interesting connections with uh, Hall. He came under. He was at Antioch College, and during his brief time there, he came under the influence of Horseman, again, who we created the modern education system, uh, the Unitarian Church, which you were talking about, the Hegelian discussion group, which was mostly left Hegelians, and then the co-founder of the Order of Skull and Bones, who was Alfonso Taft. And uh, Alfonso Taft was also, uh, he also, and he, oh, sorry, he also knew William Howard Taft, who was also a member and a a chief justice of the United States, as we know. Um, Yeah. So those are some of his, and he was influenced by Hartman, Hartman, Edward von Hartman, who was a prominent philosopher and his views. It was also very similar. He was all like, Against the individual, he says that he, he believed that there shouldn't be any in, any individual rights, that the principle of freedom is negative in every department of life. He saw religion alone compulsory is necessary. What all men need is rational tyranny if it only holds them to a steady development according to the laws of their own nature. So essentially, he thought that tyranny was the only way to survive and you know function um yeah. <laughs> and he was really influenced by Fechner who was also uh like one of his primary focuses was on parapsychology and psycho, what they call psychophysics so. yeah
1: yep and uh another thing G Stanley Hall thought was that and this is another weird reference to Atlantis is why this keeps coming up and I'm like what the heck uh but he said that he thought American individualism would sink the United States like Atlantis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Individualism was like the ultimate evil. Now I think there's a time and a place for individual identity as well as collective identity. Mm -hmm. When you're with your friends, when you're at your church, when you're in your parish, those are times when um, it's, A collective identity can be a good thing, but we always like in my church, we would always have respect for the individual identity as well, because God creates each of us differently with our own our own special skills, talents and ways that we can glorify him. So for me, that's like the guiding principle of this idea of individualism. And collectivism kind yeah. of working together, not strictly one or strictly exactly. the other. You get
0: into trouble with both of those. So I think that that. I, but I think that that's the lie that that's the di- the Hegelian dialectic that they want to create yeah. a false yes. dialectic. They want you to be either in one camp or the other. Because yes, if you're exactly. in the if you're in the radical individualized camp, then you're in a very much uh you know kind of like uh, Luciferian Mandevillian type of. Uh, uh, will to power uh, yeah exactly yeah. will to power uh but also this idea of virtue through sin because we are inherently flawed right so we may as well use those sins as a, a means to aspire uh you know advancement and evolution yeah uh, right that this is yeah. like the adam smithian principle mm-hmm. and it, that's what a lot of people don't know is that it was actually uh, based on Mandeville principles. So it is literally a Luciferian eugenics, Malthusian uh, philosophy. And then on the other side, you have the, you know, new age, the, uh, you know, I, it's still, I would argue, still Luciferian, but it is uh, under this uh, notion of it being—it's a paganistic type of view that yeah. you're, you know, all one, and that there there is no individual. And I think really the truth is so plainly obvious that it lies in the middle. That you know we're obviously all so intricately uh, interwoven and connected, and yeah. we have such tremendous impact on each other. Uh, but that doesn't negate the individuality and individuation. Right yeah
1: yes absolutely I totally agree that you put it very well oh.
0: <laughs> so, thank you so. I' that's all I have on hall okay I have one other thing on uh von, and I think I actually mentioned it last time but I think it's still worth mentioning uh his uh it was his grandfather on the paternal side was a Kier... I'm gonna say it wrong because I can never pronounce these German names uh kir- Sheherat, something like that, Karl uh, Hasmir Wundt was his grandfather, and he was a professor at Heidelberg University, and the order, uh, the Illuminati order documents show that he was known to be Raphael, so Wilhelm Vont's grandfather was literally in the Illuminati. Of course. Yeah. That sounds right. <laughs> yeah goodness
1: uh, yeah so it's it's just bizarre you always think you're just going to do a little bit of historical study and and it always ends up leading to these crazy things Crazy. Um, that's the fun of it right that's the yeah. fun find this stuff so um the next person I have on my list that I wanted to talk about was Emil Kraepelin again a Ooh. German name I'm probably yeah. saying it wrong um but he he was really important because he was the founder of modern scientific psychiatry, which is kind of, I'm not even going to go all the way through with him because he starts early 1900s and then mm-hmm. goes all the way through World War II. But at the beginning, so we're in like pre-World War One era, um, this is when modern scientific psychiatry was started. And the
0: doctoring I, of the soul. So we have the yeah. study of the soul,
1: and now we have the doctoring. And, have the of the doctoring. Soul. and this is where a lot of the drugs and the treatments and things like this come from. So I think it's really important because I think Courtney and I are on the same page in regard to our skepticism about modern psychiatric medical treatments for people. Um, and it's yeah. always been it's always been pretty crazy. Uh, so he was the first person to really put forward this strong idea that psychiatric illness was biological and genetic. There's some truth to that, but they have also found, like Courtney said, that it's not a dyed-in-the-wool thing. Epigenetics is like 80% responsible for disease development. So like uh, Rob Wolf always says, genetics loads the gun and epigenetics pulls the trigger, right? So it depends. It depends. Just because you have certain genes doesn't mean that all of those genes are going to end up giving you disease or, or different or good or bad things. It depends. But he had like a very firm idea that genetics was all there was to it. That everything's genetic, that, that there's nothing, there's no way around that. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, and he began at the university of Leipzig where Wundt was and had his first experimental psychology lab. And he studied under Wundt as well. (laughs) So, um, He wrote the Compendium of Psychiatry in 1883, which is kind of the first, is kind of like a DSM-5-ish type of a manual for its day, but we're talking 1883, so it was a long time ago. Um, In 1912, he got funding from, uh, I know his name, why didn't I put it here? The same, let me Google it. I think it's Loeb. The German-Jewish banker who funded a lot of this stuff at the time. German-Jewish banker.
0: Not the (laughs) Rothschilds.
1: No, but he was connected with them. Okay. I, like, literally was writing so fast that I skipped the actual word because I usually know it. Right. Yeah. I think that was him. But he, so he got all of this funding to create the German Institute for Psychiatric Research in Munich in 1917. And this became super influential. It became, basically, it was the German Institute for Psychiatric Research, which then became the Kaiser Wilhelm Society. And they got this huge Rockefeller Fund donation, which turned it into like, a giant tentacle monster of MK Ultra stuff later. Um I'm just gonna double check that, but go ahead if you've got anything relating.
0: Jeez. I don't know if
1: you went. I don't know if you went as far as to get into like the right before the war German stuff.
0: Yeah, I didn't do too much at that point because I kind of thought that we would go through a lot of that next week. But yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. why I'm
1: I'm kind of just going right up to the beginning of it so we have a spot to start. Yeah. James Loeb, that's who it was. A German Jewish German American banker James Loeb. If you read um Wall Street and the Bolsheviks that that one by um my goodness, I need some I need some cocaine and meth from Freud so that my yeah. brain can't. Who did you just bring up the Skull and Bones book? Professor what? The Skull and Bones book. Um, it, it, Professor wrote, Sutton? Yes. Yeah. Professor Sutton's book on Wall Street and the Bolsheviks, he talks about this guy because he was doing, he was sending a lot of funding to them and Trotsky and different people too. Um, he was a big part of this Wall Street banking cartel that was funding all kinds of craziness during World War One. Um, yeah, so he gave him most of the money to start this German Institute for Psychiatric Research in 1917, going right at, you know, this is right around the beginning of World War One, And the this is when the Rockefeller family really took interest in psychology and psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And it was in large part because of the fact that they were into eugenics. And the Rockefellers were big fans of that at the time. Uh, and Kraepelin was, he was in some ways he was kind of a good guy or was trying to be, because he wanted psychiatric asylums to be less barbaric. He didn't want capital punishment or like a lot of restraining of people and things like that, which you could argue was probably good, but he is the one who really pioneered uh, sedating the hell out of everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. He used potassium bromide um, first. Uh, And, Ben was really the one to kind of start pioneering all the different drugs that you could control people with. Um, And he was, again, social Darwinist, racial hygiene, eugenics, very into all of that. And oddly, in the later years of his life, he became really into Buddhism and the Mm -hmm. Buddhist teachings of death and stuff like that, Um, which is just another you know, Eastern mysticism again. So this guy who was this like racial hygienist ends up being a Buddhist right before he dies. Like, Oh, how nice for you. How nice for you to like want to wipe out a bunch of people and then decide at the end of your life that you want to be a peaceful
0: Buddhist. Uh, That's Uh, very convenient. Isn't it? It, it, It's like, there's no uh, uh, atheists in foxholes, you know? Yeah. uh, Kind of reminds me of that.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's what it, well, that's what happens a lot with these people. Um, And he was, another reason he's so important is because one of his uh, students was Ernst Rudin, who was one of the more notorious Mean Mr. Mustache Clan uh, eugenic doctors who was in charge of their main program. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Ernst Rudin, he was a psychologist, psychiatrist, medical doctor who studied under your Eugene Blüler, who was like another similar thing. All these people at the time were eugenicists for the most part. Um, and Rudin studied social Darwinism and racial hygiene. He was the co-editor-in-chief of the Archive for Racial Hygiene and Social Biology in 1904. 1905, he was the co-founder for the German Society for Racial Hygiene. So... This was science at the time. I think people need to understand that because everybody's under the impression that that no one knew this was happening. No one knew this was going on until, after, until World War II when we had, um, you know, when we liberated the camps and we found out about all the horrible things that were going on. And everyone was shocked and surprised and nobody knew. And it's like, that's completely false. Margaret Sanger was, you know, parading around the United States and Europe championing yep, really. eugenics. We had eugenics societies here. We had them in Europe from the from the like 1880s until the end of World War II. It yeah. was the, it was the mainstream science. It was very accepted. there there was only some pushback by like, you know Christians, fundamentalist Christians, things like that who were against it. But the scientific community thought this was what we had to do because everything was based on evolution. Everything was based on Darwinism. So social Darwinism and biological Darwinism equals eugenics. It was the mainstream view at the time. So we can't really just have this historical revisionism of saying, oh, it was just this one party of Germans who was up to this shenanigans. This was really
0: widespread. Really
1: widespread.
0: And it's really I I feel like in every single every time we start diving into any of these topics, it's it's the it really is the, the philosophy and the worldview behind all of it. Yeah. Always.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you and I think they loved it so much because you're thinking about Thomas Malthus 100 years before. Right. And his theories of, like, Malthusian, you know, like, oh, there's only so much stuff to go around, so we have to depopulate, and we have to control, control, control nature. It's always this, like, idea that...
0: But somehow they have to control nature, so it yeah. never seems to affect them. That That's always yeah. The interesting. Well, I,
1: yeah, I think it's because they think they're the gods. They, yeah. from their occultic beliefs and their worldview, it's like... Well, someone has to be at the top and steer everything. Somebody has yeah. to be in control. And we're the smart people. We are the learned ones. We're in all these societies and these secret societies. And we're in these intellectual circles. And we're going to sit around and dictate what needs to happen. And so it was like this was really the dominant I, medicine and psychology of the time. It yeah, was not it wasn't specific to to national socialists
0: in Germany at all? No, not at all. I mean, obviously, a lot of these groups are, you know, though we're seeing them in, in England, we're seeing them in France. Um, I, I have a group here, it's in Poland. So it's really through these elite and academic circles that's not at all relegated to one geo, geographical lo- locus. Um, but I th- what I was going to say is that I think another really important component for people to understand is that they. This is what we were saying before about how these philosophies always seem to somehow justify their views, and I yeah. think that that's the case with psychology. So you know yeah. they created things like you know intelligence uh, uh, testing. They created means of determining uh, disability and mental disability and mental illness, and they system it and labeled it and codified it in ways that substantiate. It's literally like a uh, a blueprint for their confirmation bias and a way to corral people towards their worldview and to justify, yeah. you know, the fact that they want to kill off tons of people and the fact that they uh, want to take control over people that they deem to be less than and yeah. they do it all under the guise that they're being, you know, so helpful and that they're it's for the betterment of humanity when really yeah. it's just for them to have control and then for them yeah. to have you feel good about them taking control.
1: Right, right. <laughs> because in order to do all of this benevolent stuff, they need control over all the re- resources and the money and and everything they need control over everything in order everything. to save us right it's always to save you from whatever's about to happen if they don't help you um but i think we'll we'll kind of head into wrapping this up guys so if you yeah. have last minute questions or comments that, send it yeah. through the dono chat we both have dono chat links pin, pinned to the top so if you enjoyed this and you want to support the show please do that if you have questions or comments Click the donut chat link. It's super easy, really quick uh, to make a donation. So go ahead, Courtney, what
0: were you saying? Oh, I was just going to say, I think one other thing, I don't know if we covered, um, was the uh, Society for Psycho Research. Yes, I do have a little bit on that. Okay, (laughs) because that was kind of one of the things also that brought, uh, you know, psychology to the United States. And uh, it was uh, literally the study of like they like thought transmission and telepathy essentially, Uh, but you know they they coined it thought transmission because that was more scientific.
1: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> no yeah anyway. but, like, no but, these basically a bunch of nerdy nerdy weirdos and pervs we'll get into that next week there's a lot of perviness going on here totally. too.
0: but i like, also think it's so relevant when yeah. you talk about things like mk ultra right because that's essentially it's like a precursor yes. to all of this uh like remote viewing kind of projects that they did uh um, yeah. yes
1: yeah, they were doing a big part of this was because uh, part of it was because spiritualism was so big at the time.
0: Um, that this, this is in actually, it's called spiritualism and it's called a uh, occultism made in the USA. And then the first part of it is spiritualism. I don't know if people can see, but that's yeah,
1: yeah. So, yeah. yes, a large part of the early studies of all of these mainstream psychologists that you're never going to hear this in your like American history class or if you go to school for psychology they're just going to tell you the nice bullet points they're not going to tell you that these people are all trying to study remote viewing uh telepathy ESP uh all of the paranormal stuff so the the it was called the society for psychical research. And then there was another one that was like a paranormal research, but many of these people dabbled in lots of paranormal psychology yep. and established paranormal psychology as a field. So that was a big part of it too. That's why many of them were hypnotists or used different types of hypnotism. Um, there was some, just some really, really bizarre wackadoo stuff going on. Um, uh, they had a, uh, what what else was I just thinking of? The um the idea that like the there was one guy who had this idea that the sinuses were connected to like the reproductive organs, and he was doing oh, like, yes. weird sinus surgeries on people. This was kind of an excuse for, and I've noticed this in my own life. A lot of people who have their own mental illness struggles want to be psychologists, right? They my want mom be-
0: always says research is me search.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I think that in this case, that was super true because everybody involved in the founding of the field was, some of them were a little off. Some of them yeah. had some issues. Some of them had some problems. You guys might know that about people like Freud and Jung. They were not like exceptions. They, they're they the ones that history remembers. But most of these people had their own mental health struggles or thought they might be psychics or thought they could hypnotize people or wanted to see what they could do to people. Um, And then when we get in next week to things like sexology emerging as a field, Mm -hmm. guess guess what? Those people were all, you know, they were all sexual deviants who were, I'm just scientifically studying my sexual deviance. Nothing to see behind this curtain. Right. So it's (laughs) like, it's kind of like how, Often in our research, we find that if there's a nonprofit group or some kind of philanthropic group and they're saying, oh, we're helping these people, those are usually the people that they're exploiting or harming. It's kind of similar to that, where it's like the crazy people want to be in charge of everyone's mental health and the pervy people want to be the sexologists and do experiments on everyone. So you can see, I think, just from the stuff that we've talked about tonight, where we're talking about things like hypnotism, para- parapsychological research, telepathy. And then we're experimenting with drugs to hypnotize and influence people, and of course, under the guise of curing them. And of some of them, some of them may have been very sincere in that. Some of yeah. them may have been. It doesn't really matter, though, because you're still messing with stuff that you don't know what you're messing with. And, ex- and it requires all this experimentation, all this human experimentation with drugs, with techniques that later we're going to find, of course, are going to be used for very nefarious purposes. Because if you could control the minds of people, if you could steer the psyche of people, if you could control the biology of people if you can control the evolution of the human species which I would say I, I, I don't think there's macro evolution but let's just say like the microevolution, the adaptation mm-hmm. of the species if you can control the biology and the psyche of the species who are the kinds of people who do you think are going to be interested in that sort of thing and so those people right away went "Ooh, I like this where can I invest right and So going into World War I is where we're going to see, okay, there's been enough research. It's been established as a science, although I would argue it wasn't scientific. No. Whatsoever. Uh, But you'll see the worst people in the world with the most money really heavily invest and basically take this over. So even if you wanted to look back at this and say these people had good intentions, I think a lot of them probably did. But whenever you're talking about controlling human beings, there's going to be bad people with lots of money who are going to want to invest and kind of take that over,
0: oh, which is right. what
1: ends up happening. So, yeah. What exactly. do you
0: how What do you think on wrapping up this episode? I think so. I think we you know covered. Yeah, I think it's uh we're pretty much right up to right around the 1912, right, which is where lots of fun stuff commences.
1: Yeah people always ask me if I think there was like turning points and in modern history I always would say like 1913 uh, is definitely a year that a lot of stuff started popping off and 1912 was like 1912
0: was just you know gearing up and yeah so much. And 1913 was definitely a huge turning point for sure. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
1: There was just so many things that came together and then we're going to see as always that in the theater of war they're able to do all kinds of craziness that they yeah. normally wouldn't yep. be able to get away with so that's when Courtney and I both are kind of in agreement that we think a lot of the mk ultra type experimentation actually started in world war 1 not in 1953 mm-hmm. no um and so we'll kind of go over it. next week should be super exciting these last two if you liked these two i think you're going to love the next few that yes. we do because we're going to really get into these were kind of laying the groundwork for the absolute madness pun intended that happens for the next hundred years. And then we take a look at where we think we are now to wrap it up. So I hope you guys like the series and you follow it. The best is yet to come for sure.
0: Yeah. And I, and just to, to Rachel's point about, you know, wartime research and how they use that as a cover to get away with doing all sorts of Really, really inhumane things. Uh, You know, I think a great example is just think about ARPA. It was the Advanced Research Project Agency. Then it became DARPA, right? So I always say that as soon as they put a D in front of it for defense, then yeah. they have a carte blanche, black off budget. They can do whatever they want, and they can do it in secrecy and tell you one thing while they're doing whatever they want. And yeah. we're going to see that, you know, when we start talking about Tavistock next week. It was literally the British Propaganda Bureau, and they created it under the guise that they had to because their enemies, the Germans, had a propaganda bureau. So, of course, they had to have a propaganda bureau. But, uh, well, certainly, I guess, you know, we can say that They definitely did do propaganda, but it had very little to do with uh, creating defense and protection from, you know, foreign invaders. So,
1: (laughs) yes. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to to wrap up. Check our Dono Chats. Um, Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first?
0: I don't have any. So I'm going to let you go. Yeah,
1: You guys better give Courtney Dono Chats. She works very hard. Okay, thank I you. do have a few. So thank okay, you guys yeah, so let's much. go through it. Thank you guys so much for the dono chats on my end. Yeah. Um I have one from Willie Jenkins. I love your screen name, Willie. Uh, he says, keep nailing the Prussian system, missing trivium, and smart, strong, but still feminine woman topics. Don't give an inch. Well, I won't. And
0: I know <laughs> Courtney won't.
1: I already know she won't, like
0: for sure. <laughs> you
1: ain't going to get her to cave on anything. So thank you so much, Willie. That was so nice of you. Um mm. We got a $10 donation from RC. No message. Thank you so much for that donation. Really appreciate that. Um And then we have $5 from Kristen Slowboy. Shout out, Kristen. She's my pal. We love her. She said, this talk was excellent. Looking forward to next week. I saw in the chat she was very excited to learn that this is a series. So Yay! Yeah, Yay! And then we also have a five dollar donation from Neurojack. He asks, what came first, the demons or the idea egregor slash practice?
0: Hmm. Wow, that's a really deep question, Neurojack. Um yeah, you go, and then I actually have some thoughts on that. Okay. Um,
1: I mean, I would say the demons, but that's just because uh, I mean, if you're Christian, we think that the demons came about as a reaction to humanity being made in the image of God. They didn't like that. Um, So I think uh, there's all, the reason you can look back across time, we've got like 6,000 years of recorded history. We can look back and see the same patterns. I mean, the majority of what Courtney and I do is noticing patterns (laughs) (laughs) and uh, you can look back over 6,000 years and see the same patterns over and over through every age. And I think the reason for that, how, like, how could there be such continuity across time? How could there be like, it doesn't seem to matter what age you're in. There's a group of elites who are doing evil stuff. How could that be? Well, it's the same spirits behind this. It's the same demonic entities who have been around for a long time and really know what works best on us and really know how to cause chaos, problems, suffering, and evil. Um, And I think that that's ultimately beneath all the layers of everything. I think that's what's there. Mm -hmm. And I think that the good news is that God can use those things for our salvation to transform us and to edify us and to divinize us and to to provide a way for us to have salvation and go back to him. So I think the demonic came first. um, But I think there's always... I mean, the thing about salvation is it's not very sexy and it's not very, it's not always glamorous or fun, right? You you do suffer in this life and there's always going to be some people who are going to see the demonic allure of like, don't you want to be God? Don't you think you should be in charge? I mean, you have all this knowledge. You have all this gnosis. I think that's why intellectuals get swept into it, like the yeah. people we're talking about. They get this uh, because they're all in a circle patting each other on the back about how smart they are. They just sit in secret societies sniffing their own farts and thinking that they're like so much smarter than everyone else. You know what I mean? I just saw a, a TikTok video of this horrific teacher and she was screaming and yelling at the school board about homeschooling and how homeschooling needed to be eliminated because she said, we're the teachers. We have master's degrees in education. What do these parents have? And I'm thinking, lady, do you want to do a debate right now? Because I guarantee your masters ain't going to do crap when you actually have to deal with someone who knows how to think. So I think it's it's the it makes these people very self-important. And they do start thinking, yeah, why shouldn't I run things? Why shouldn't we be in charge? I think the demonic contempt these people that way. So I think they came first and then uh, the practice of worshiping or emulating them, taking the deal thinking that you're going to be God, you're going to get something out of this. I think that came second. What do you think, Courtney?
0: Yeah, so this is something I, I've i really spent a lot of time thinking about. And I... I was actually having a conversation with my fiance about this earlier today, about how I think people can work reverse. So it's one thing if you come from the religious framework and that's, you know, then you you have that foundation, but there are a lot of people who don't. And I, I would say that, you know, right now, I think we're in a really interesting time because a lot of people are waking up, quote unquote, you know, um, and a lot of people are really searching, and they're searching for spiritual kind of, you know, they're they're finding religion for the first time or they're being more open to it for the first time, but they don't have that foundation, and, and I can say that for myself, you know, what I, I think I talked about this on the last episode, you know, that I I was going through this from much more academic perspective, I was studying Marxism and philosophy, and the more that I studied the more I learned about Satanism, essentially, you know, that was really what just kept coming up. And so, but what's fascinating is a lot of people who say to me, I think you probably get this uh, question a lot too. is like, how can you study like such darkness? Isn't that like so depressing? And doesn't that leave you filled with despair? And you know, what's so interesting. The irony is that when I studied the reverse, You know, I studied the lie essentially because a lot of these Marxist philosophies and I would put, you know, I wrote my thesis on existential authenticity. And so I very much like fell into, I I now can see the lie because that was, it was, um, they sold it to you as it being empowering. You get to essentially be your God. You're, you're defining your own path and you're completely in charge and The irony is that actually leaves you feeling more filled with despair because there is no real purpose. And we, right. So it's not that I don't think that we, uh, that we have any role in creating meaning and purpose in our own lives. I absolutely think we do. Uh, And even if you have a biblical worldview, I think that that still holds true, but there is still something so much more, uh, while it's humbling, it's also really empowering and comforting to know that there is a greater purpose, that there is a, a, a spiritual realm and that there is a, uh, you know, eternal component and that it isn't just the here and now. But I say all this just to say that when you start going back, you see the spiritual battle. And as you yes. so beautifully said that, you know, that's why these patterns crop up throughout, you know, time, throughout a as far as we have any record of humanity and of uh, entities dealing with each other we see this battle play out we see the same themes recurring repeatedly and but what i think is what where the question comes for a lot of people especially if they don't have that foundation they don't because there is an element of faith right if you if you are a religious person that's uh, just inherent and intrinsic to being a believer that there is a leap of faith and i think that if you don't have that foundation then you may see that but what the big question becomes is that prior to the biblical the written word Right. Just chronologically speaking, we have all these writings from the ancient mystics and from uh, the pagans. And so in terms of, uh, r- you know, written text and what's been documented, that precedes the biblical word. And so I think this is where the 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 question arises, I think, for people, you know. And so yeah. if you take it from the biblical framework, it's that that, that, that always existed but the the recording came afterwards. And so, they, and if that is true, you know, again, I don't claim to have the answer and I'm not telling anybody what to believe because, you know, <laughs> I think we have free will. And I believe that, you know, part of free will is freedom of consciousness. And so it's, you know, it's incumbent on each person, that's their path. You know, interestingly enough, the term, the word Israel literally means to wrestle. And when you read the the Torah, like that's the whole theme is that it is about wrestling with God. It's about wrestling with uh, faith and asking the questions. So I I think that's really important. And I I welcome that for everybody. That's the part of, I think, I believe that's part of our path. We're here to do that. So, uh, you know, but if you do believe that, then it would make sense that, yes, the spirits came first and this is a spiritual battle. um, And then the uh, of course, the practices are just because they work through uh, the physical entities, which would be humans, in order to play out uh, yes. the battle. So,
1: Yep, that is correct. Oh, I, we got one more from Anglo Christian for $10. Thank you so much. He says, he or she says, I'd like to see you ladies do a dive into Gerald Gardner, founder of Wicca. My own dive cured me of my paganism. Um, And then he just also said that your dono chat was not linked in my description. That is true. If you guys go to Courtney Turner's uh, YouTube, Rockfin or Rumble, you can find her on any of those three. Subscribe to her there, by the way. Because I'm very
0: censored. I've had to start many new channels.
1: (laughs) And you guys, if you like my content, you're going to love her content. And she does. She puts out more volume than I do. She's like banging them out every day or two. Um, She has great guests all the time. She just had, she's the one that did that amazing panel with uh, Jay and James Lindsay and she does amazing stuff. So definitely go find her any, depending on which one you like. I mean, Rockfin and Rumble are obviously ideal. I'm going to get on there. I know I'm going to get on there, Um, but go find her there. And she has the Dono chat link there. And just a reminder too, you can send us tips on Dono chat, even if you miss the live. So if you're watching this after, Um, You can always send Courtney a donation. You can send her a suggestion for what you'd like to see her cover. Mm -hmm. um, If you want to see us both cover something. So um, definitely do that. It's just since she is so incredibly censored, it's incredibly hard for her to monetize her work, which is, I think, horrible. So please go support her on all of her stuff if you're watching from my channel. Um, Just because I am still on YouTube for now. But that's why we love Dono Chat. It gives her a chance to monetize her content without having to worry about the powers that be.
0: Because yes. I think she I just, does make them mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just so you know, I, I get this comment from people all the time. You forgot to upload to YouTube. No, I did not forget to upload to YouTube. I do not upload everything to YouTube because I actually want to just keep this channel up just to have a presence there. Uh, there. And yes, you know, I could do like little clips or do a starting and then go elsewhere. But yeah. I really like to have my con- conversations be organic. And I don't want to censor my guests. And so sometimes things come up pretty early on. And we can speak in code so much. But it kind of, one of the reasons I started doing this was because I felt like one of the biggest problems with people who are outside of mainstream narratives is that they engage in auto critique. I knew enough about the Maoist struggle sessions to know that didn't work so well for them. <laughs> and I really just didn't want to be a part of the problem. So it, it's kind of really just, uh, to bring up authenticity. That's really, it's just kind of very much out of alignment with my own personal authenticity. I started this as a you know mission to, uh, not be part of the problem. So I, that's part of why. So if the episode just isn't going to work and I, you know, of course I have to use a little bit of discernment. We don't always know. I've already gotten a strike on this one. So, you know, but uh, it's just one, It was one warning. So I'm really trying to be careful. And they're, you know, I've, I've had like close friends who obviously follow me and look for my work and they still can't find channel- my channel. So yeah, <laughs> so it's definitely the algorithm is not like- Well, I'll go time. back and post too
1: and I'll add all your links to my description box too okay. just because I know thank people you. are going to be interested in your show and want to follow you. So thank definitely you. do that, everybody. Thank you. Well, thank you. This was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah this, for the this, next uh, uh, I'm also, I have a plan to um, write articles on each episode and upload okay. it to my Substack because what we go over, it's so dense and yeah. we're just like pumping out a lot of stuff. And I know people are probably like wanting to maybe dig into things more. So I will do like a written up kind of article version of this series, Great. put it on my Substack with like links and citations and all that stuff for all of my nerdy friends who want to go in and, and get all that good stuff, you know, so that'll awesome. it'll come up if on I something do anything there. to
0: help any of those. Let me know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I may just ask you for some source material yeah, totally. for the stuff that you said, but that's about it. Otherwise I'll just, Ooh. I'll put that up. So thank you guys all so much for watching and we, uh, we're excited for next time. So
0: yeah, thank you.